Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. This is from Mark 6, 7 through 44. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet. He is one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, and he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of the Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodiah's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and ordered to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that had been done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure event to eat. And they went in the boat, away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now not many of them were going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when, he, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he, Jesus, answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to the heaven and said a blessing broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the fish, the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand. The word of the Lord. Thank you very much for reading that, that passage. A little longer today than uh, some of the others, but all of these stories we'll see have a very important theme that connects them, so I want to deal with them together. So, we've been going through the the Gospel of Mark, I believe we're in our 11th week, and we've been noting each week that Mark's Gospel is all about addressing two key questions. First of all, who is Jesus? And second of all, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And we've seen these stories kind of 
increase the stakes of each, uh, each week so that who Jesus is is more than just one who has the power to heal, more than just one who teaches with authority. He is also one who is able to quiet the winds and the waves. He is also one who can cast out armies of demons. He is even one who can lay his hands upon a dead girl and bring her back to life. So his, his identity is continuing to uh, up and up and up in the understanding of the disciples. And as we recognize his increased authority, his increased identity, the question, what does it mean to follow him, becomes increasingly urgent and increasingly impossible for us to dismiss. Last week we saw that faith alone in Christ alone will take care of us. Christ is sufficient for all of our needs. And so we put our faith in him and we know that he can take care of us. This week, Mark is going to turn us to focus on the care of Jesus. He's going to show us that Jesus is the king that we need, the king that we have been seeking. We are going to discover in these three stories that Jesus has come as the good shepherd. In fact, we will see as we go through these these passages three ways that Jesus is the good shepherd. See, each of these stories center on the idea of shepherding. We're going to see in the first story that Jesus gathers his sheep. In the second story that Jesus, or actually I should say in the third story, that Jesus feeds his sheep. And then in the story in between, that Jesus will be the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd that has been long sought and long needed The history of Israel is the story of God shepherding his people, but watching his people get increasingly insufficient shepherds. Shepherds who sought to take care of their own needs at the expense of the sheep. And so as we go through this passage today, an important chapter in the uh, book of Ezekiel will be in the background. Ezekiel chapter 34. And if you have your Bible with you, Put one finger in Ezekiel 34 as we will flip back there from time to time. This is the passage where God is dealing with uh, the the anti-shepherds and gets ready to present to us the shepherd that Jesus will be uh, fulfills. But in the in the scriptures, the shepherd is uh, is what God has called His leaders to be. Leadership and shepherding are synonyms from the from the biblical perspective. And I think this passage, as it talks about Jesus as the good shepherd, is impressively, increasingly, desperately needed for us today. Because I think just like in Jesus' day, we continue to have a great desperation and a great hunger for good leaders. And I think we also deal with substantial disappointment with those who are raised up to lead us. I remember when I was a young kid... There was this debate about uh, should basketball players be good moral examples since so many kids follow them. And, and the, and the dis- conversation was, oh, absolutely, they need to be. Uh, they need to be because they're role models. Being a leader is a role model. I don't hear that conversation very much anymore. We've just kind of sold that out. They're leaders, but they're not role models. We don't, we don't need our, our athletes to be role models. We just need them to be good and entertaining and I find that to be sad, but it's, it, 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 it speaks to the hunger that we have for a leader. Can a leader be both excellent and a moral example? I think the same thing we deal with in politics. There was a survey, a poll, that was taken just before the 2016 election, and it showed that evangelicals, had overwhelmingly thrown away the need for a candidate for president to have high moral character. The the, the switch was like, it went from 20% to 80%. It flipped entirely. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy that we had to sacrifice our insistence on character. I think there is a hunger for good shepherds, a need for good shepherds. And as we look at what the world continues to lift up and continues to provide us, we come up lacking. 
But today's passage, I hope, comforts and encourages us and perhaps reorients us back to what a good leader, a good shepherd is by pointing us to the good shepherd and reminding us that our loyalty is first and foremost to him because he alone gathers us, feeds us, and lays his life down for us. Let us now look at this passage in detail as we see three ways that we discover Jesus is the good shepherd. First, we're going to look at verses 7 through 13, where we are going to see that Jesus gathers his sheep. Jesus gathers his sheep, verses 7 through 13. A little bit of an overview of these verses. Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples, who he also calls apostles, at the beginning of this passage, and he's sending them out to proclaim the gospel. Now, it's important to understand how this relates to the theme of shepherding by reminding ourselves of what Jesus was doing when he called the 12 disciples back in Mark chapter 3, verse 14. We noted the importance that, that uh, is around the number 12, that Jesus calls 12 disciples is a clear echo that the 12 disciples stand in relation to the 12 tribes of Israel. So there are two things that are significant about that. Jesus does not include himself in the 12. He does not include himself in the 12. That puts him in the same category as God in respect to the 12 tribes. So the 12 that Jesus is, is restoring are centered around him. There is a, an implicit claim to deity, to equality with God in the fact that Jesus is building the community around him. He's putting the community of 12 with him in the center. But also because of the number 12, we recognize that what Jesus is doing with the disciples is he is continuing the plan of redemption, which he began with the 12 tribes of Israel, and he is basically restoring or renewing Israel through the 12 tribes, through the 12 disciples who stand in for the the, the tribes of Israel. This becomes explicit if we go over to the parallel telling of this passage in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, where we are told this, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go then to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You see, what Jesus is doing in this first missionary journey with his 12 is he is seeking to gather the remnant of Israel. He is seeking to gather the lost sheep of Israel to himself. Again, you see the implicit connection between Jesus' self-understanding and God. He is gathering the lost sheep of Israel, who are God's lost sheep, to himself. All the way through the Gospels is this clear self-understanding of Jesus that he is divine. He is God's son. It would be impossible to keep the picture of Jesus that we have without that self-understanding, which pervades every passage. So these lost sheep of Israel, what what do we mean by lost sheep of Israel? Well, that's where we need to go back to our passage in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 34... God gives his prophet Ezekiel this incredible condemnation and denouncement of the shepherds of Israel, the people who were in charge of leading his people of Israel. And it's because they did such an awful job that his sheep, he tells us, are lost. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5 real quickly. He says, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. These are the lost sheep of Israel. They are the weak, the sick, the injured, the strayed. They are the lost sheep of Israel because they did not have a shepherd to guide them and to lead them. 
I think is, it's worth noting here that this is what happens to real sheep. Real sheep become lost, weak, sick, injured, and strayed. Being a sheep, being part of God's people, does not mean that you will not go through periods of weakness or sickness or, or becoming injured or strayed. Now those are, are speaking of uh, spiritual situations, not so much physical situations, but I don't think we do any injustice to, to see both. But you can be a real sheep and be weak. You can be a real sheep who is uh, spiritually immature, that is not where you are supposed to be, that has not been fed properly by the word of God, and you are weak, and you are in a dangerous situation in this world that is going to continue to offer snares to you because you are weak in the word, you have not been shepherded in the word. You can also be sick. You can be sick, you can be, have, have been fed an awful diet, you can have been fed poisons that is mixed in with the word that is meant to give you life. And because of that, you are sick. And you are unable to understand truth from error clearly. It is possible to be a sheep who is sick. It is possible to be a sheep that is weak. It is possible to be a sheep that is injured. Shepherds can injure their sheep. You can receive... uh, an injury of, of your trust being violated, your confidence being violated. You can be injured by, by bad preaching or by failures that wound your soul and leave you struggling. And it's also possible for sheep to stray. There are so many paths and there are so many thickets in this world that are snares and temptations that as you leave the gathering of the people, you are constantly being given false paths. And it can happen that you stray. It can happen that you start following down a line that seems good, that becomes a snare, that means you are now separated and afraid and alone. You have strayed into dangerous territory and you are only a sheep. But this happens to real sheep. And perhaps some of you are here today recognizing, yes, I am weak. I am sick. I am am injured. I am strayed. I have gotten gotten taken away by pornography, or I've gotten taken away by alcohol, or I've gotten taken away by workaholism. I have been strayed. I have been confused. I have gone cold and become weak in my spiritual life. I am a sheep that is right here. Sick, injured, strayed. So Ezekiel 34 says this in verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that has been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So if you have been a sheep that has become weak and injured, sick and strayed, here is what God says. He will come for you. He will gather you back. And that is what the gospel story is about. He sent his son to go and gather the sheep. Whether you are weak or sick or injured or strayed or plain and simply lost. God has sent his son to gather the sheep. Jesus in this story is the shepherd that rescues from every kind of lostness. Every kind of lostness Jesus comes and rescues from. Whether you are weak, whether you are injured, whether you are strayed or lost, he is here to rescue from every kind of lostness. And how does he do that? He gathers the lost through sending the disciples out to preach the gospel. The disciples go out and they preach, repent, repent 
is the message that we are told they are given. Now, I believe that repent stands for the whole gospel message of repent and believe in the gospel that we meet in, in uh, um, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. But it reminds us that when the apostles uh, single out the word repent as a standalone for the gospel, that the true gospel cannot be separated from the message of repentance. In fact, the gospel can be communicated as a message of repentance. It is repentance and forgiveness of sins. That is what Jesus tells the disciples to go out and do in Luke 24 when he sends them on the Great Commission. But repentance is an essential, non-negotiable, inseparable part of the gospel message. It's not just, do you believe in Jesus? Do you know Jesus? It's, have you repented and followed Jesus? That's part of the message. Have you turned from your sins? Have you turned from the kingdoms that you are building and the, and the temptations that you are succumbing to to follow Jesus? To call upon Jesus to be your shepherd and go where he leads you. Notice also that not only is repent an essential part of the gospel message, but it applies to everyone. Look, look at verses, um, verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. It wasn't go and find the people that need to repent. It was the assumption that everybody that they were going to meet, everyone that was going to hear the message, needed to repent. Because every single one of us falls in that category of strayed, lost, weak, and sick. If we are left to ourselves, we are going down the wrong path. Sheep do not lead themselves, shepherds do. And so we have here a call that all people everywhere must repent and believe in Jesus Christ. They must come to him. Finally, notice that the message the disciples give us offer only two responses. Jesus says, some places you will come and they will receive you, and if they receive you, spend time with them. But then others, if they reject it, if they reject your message, if they will not listen to you, the disciples are told to knock the dust off their feet and go elsewhere. There are only two responses that we can have when the message of repent and believe in the gospel is brought to us. There is receive it, or reject it. Both are monumentally consequential. You receive it, and the good shepherd brings you home. He gathers you into the flock. You reject it, and you have a pile of dust that stands at your doorframe that will testify against you at the day of judgment. You heard this gospel. You knew the message of repent. You knew the message of believe. You knew that the good shepherd had come to gather you, and you rejected it. Some of us here have an ever-increasing mountain of dirt at your doorstep because week after week the gospel has been put in front of you, and instead of receiving it with joy, gladness, and repentance, you say, not today. I fear for you because that mountain of dirt will testify to your hard-heartedness and you will stand before God who wanted to give you grace and mercy and you will have a mountain of rejection dirt and you will have no excuse when the Lord says, depart from me. But the good shepherd is here to rescue every kind of lostness. There is no kind of lostness that you are going through. That the good shepherd, Jesus, is not here gathering you to. And how do you come? How do you gather yourself to the Lord Jesus? How do you uh, go from being weak and sick and injured and strayed? It's simple. You hear the voice of your shepherd crying out to you, Repent, I am here, follow my voice. He will turn you around from the thickets, and if you follow his voice, that is what repentance is. He will lead you from the thicket. He will lead you from the temptation. He will lead you from the weakness. He will restore you from the injury, and he will bring you home. But you have to turn and follow the shepherd's voice. 
So what does this mean for us as followers? The first, obviously, that we've got revealed here is that Jesus is the good shepherd who gathers his sheep. What does that mean is the second question of the Gospel of Mark. What does that mean for us as followers? It means we must be people who give the gospel. I mean, wholeheartedly, non-negotiably, unapologetically, we go and give the gospel. The gospel is what gathers the lost sheep. There are lots of good things that we put a lot of energy to that don't gather the sheep. They just put a coat on them for the cold. If we want the sheep gathered, if we want them rescued, if we want them in the shepherd's care, we must be committed to the gospel. That is why our mission statement here is that we are people who help us live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. Because to live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ is our only hope. And if we offer the world anything else besides that, we are not offering the only hope. So as the disciples were sent by Jesus to proclaim the message of the gospel, let us take the same charge as followers of the good shepherd. Let us announce again and again that the good shepherd is here to gather the lost sheep. Come to him. Second, Jesus gathers his sheep. Now we are going to skip down to verses 30 to 44, and I'll explain why in just a little bit. But second, we understand Jesus is the good shepherd because he feeds his sheep. So we look at this passage, a beloved passage of the scriptures, of the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples at the top of this passage in, in verse 30 have returned from their missionary journey, and they're tired. And so Jesus, who is compassionate to them, says, well, let us get away, and we'll give you a time of rest. So they cross the Sea of Galilee and they head to a desolate place, a place that's not supposed to have any people in it. That's where Jesus is going to give his people rest. But the crowd, the crowd somehow still finds them. And they race to catch up to Jesus so that they can know more of who this Jesus person is. And so when they get to this desolate place for rest and recuperation, they are instead swarmed by a large crowd. And Jesus shows compassion to them. He teaches them and he feeds them. Now to understand the story of the feeding of the 5,000, we need to recognize that it is a clear, uh, uh, that it echoes a very important uh, truth in the Old Testament. Jesus is here feeding in a desolate place the people of God. Where has that happened in the Old Testament. It happens in, in the, the uh, book of Exodus, Leviticus, uh, and uh, Numbers, where Jesus has called his people, or God has called his people into the wilderness, and he feeds them daily the manna. So Jesus is here in a desolate place, like a wilderness, very much uh, similar to the idea of the wilderness that the people went through in the, in the at time of the Exodus. And he is feeding These people, he is feeding them. So he is similar to Moses with Israel, and he is similar to Moses with the feeding of the manna. Furthermore, we see that he is setting, the setting of this this beautiful story is right by the, the side of the water, the Sea of Galilee. And there's one interesting descriptor one interesting adjective in, the, in, in describing the place that they were at. We're told that they laid down on green grass. Where have we heard being laid down on green grass? The 23rd Psalm. The 23rd Psalm. And what is the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He causes me to lay down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He is taking his people, sitting them down in green pastures next to still waters, because he is the good shepherd. We see in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus as the good shepherd on several different 
accounts, I'll give you three ways that we see Jesus as the good shepherd in the feeding of the 5,000. First, we see him as the good shepherd because he serves out of a deep love. A deep, nearly supernatural love. He has his disciples who are tired. And as we know from the story of the storm, Jesus is human. He experiences tiredness. He is probably also very much looking forward to a weekend with the guys, a little time off. Because he has been bombarded by crowds and by needs nonstop. But he does not seek to take care of himself. He is motivated out of a deep love. Though he is tired, he is moved by compassion. And the Greek here is, uh, speaks of him, compassion in using the word splagnon, which is not a beautiful word, but it communicates something beautiful. It's the same word that Paul uses to describe his love of Onesimus in the book of Philemon, and I bring that up because many of us are familiar with that. But it's the deep guts, it's the deep down core affection of us. It's that, it's that love that just wells up out of you when you pick up your baby for the first time. It's that deep, oh, primal affection. Affection that is so deep that it controls you. It's that affection that says, when I have that affection, there is nothing I won't give. The only time that you think about laying down your life for somebody is when those affections are stirred. And that's the word that is being used here to describe Jesus' compassion. He sees these people, these lost sheep. He calls them sheep without a shepherd. And his compassion, his guts are clenched and he says, I have to love them. I can't go and rest. I have to love them. So he comes with a great love to serve them. Second, his love feeds them. Jesus feeds his sheep. He recognizes that there are two deep and critical hungers in this people. And the first one is being fed the word of God. So he spends all day teaching them about the kingdom of God, giving them the word of God, because they have been starved by poor and, and failed shepherds. And so he feeds them the word of God. He feeds them spiritually. He teaches them the truths of God. And then, because they hang on his every word, and the disciples come to him and say, this is a desolate place. We've got to get these people out of here. Subway's about to close. He says, we're going to feed them. Obviously, the disciples are like, in what universe... <laughs> Is that going to happen? We've got five, sheet, five uh, 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 loaves and two fishes, which I don't know how that was going to feed the 12 disciples. They were very poor planners. Um, but they, they say, there's no way. And so this is for, for the disciples to see and understand that Jesus is the good shepherd because he takes those five loaves and two fishes and he feeds the crowd. He doesn't just feed the crowd. The third thing that we see from the good shepherd is that the good shepherd satisfies his people. He doesn't just divide up those loaves and fishes so that everybody at least has something to get them down the road. He satisfies them. Look at verses 42 and 43. 42 and 43 says, um, right here, 42... And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. He satisfies them. It's not just that they ate, it's that they were full. And I can tell you that the society that they were in, feeling full, was a rare experience. But everybody who was in that crowd left full. I had a great meal. I have been satisfied. My hunger is gone. I have been filled by Jesus. That is what everybody there knows. And so abundant was God's favor to them through Christ that there was 12 baskets left over. One for every disciple to pick up and say, wow, this doesn't quite add up. 
on purpose. It doesn't quite add up. But for us to read this story, we, we recognize what Jesus is illustrating uh, through this, this miracle. He says explicitly in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus satisfied them with bread and fish so that they would see that the satisfaction that they need in their souls can only be found by feasting upon Christ. Coming to Christ will satisfy what you are deep down hungering, deep down searching for, significance, belonging, security, love, all of that is fulfilled to its perfection and to eternity when we come to the Good Shepherd. And when you are without it, you have a God-sized hole and your life continues to stray from the mark because you can't stuff anything that fits the hole. But you have been made to be satisfied in Christ. And that is what he wants us to see. Jesus feeds his sheep and he satisfies. Come to the Lord, you will be satisfied. So what does this mean then for us as followers? As those who are following Jesus, again, we, we see Jesus as the good shepherd who feeds his sheep. What does that mean for us as followers? And here I have to steal a line from my previous pastor who preached on this text. But he notes, especially from verse 41, which we'll read, taking the five loaves of the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. So Jesus, after saying a blessing, is giving the pieces of the loaves to the disciples for the disciples to give those to the people. So here's what's happening, and here's what my previous pastor said. What we give to them, we get from him. If we want to feed the sheep, if we want to help the sheep, if we want the sheep to be satisfied, then what we give to them, we get from him. We don't throw them a box of granola bars. We go back to Jesus Get what Jesus is giving and feed them. And so you can imagine the disciples going back and forth, back and forth, because they could only carry so, many, so much. But they had to go back, and what Jesus would give to them, they would give to them. What we get from him, we give to them. So let us make sure that as we do ministry to, to extend the good shepherd to this world, that what we give to them, we are getting from him. Let us not give ourselves, let us not give our wisdom, let us not give uh, what we think is good, let us give them what is truly good and truly wise, let us give them what comes from the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Second, we recognize as we follow Jesus that if he can feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes, that he will provide for us wherever he sends us. That's the whole reason in the Lord's Prayer we pray, give us this day our daily bread, because we know that the Lord will provide. If the Lord sends you, he will care for you. He cannot send you where he cannot take care of you. That makes, that's because he is the sovereign, he is the good shepherd. And so if you feel that your obedience to the Lord requires you to go somewhere scary and uncomfortable, the feeding of the 5,000 reminds us that he will provide for us wherever he sends us. I think that's a great comfort. So we've seen that Jesus gathers his sheep. We see that Jesus feeds his sheep. Now let's go back to that passage that we skipped over, verses 14 to 29, where we are going to see that Jesus gives his life for his sheep. So in the middle of these two stories, we are given this long account of Herod, Herod Antipas, and the execution of John the Baptist. Now we need to recognize when we read the word Herod in this passage, first of all, that this is not the same Herod that we meet in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 that uh, went after Jesus as a baby. 
This is one of Herod's sons, and he was the king, not truly a king, but he was the ruler over the area of Galilee and and another area. So he is the person that's being talked about here. He is the son of Herod the Great. Now, this story comes as, a, as an interruption. We're told after the disciples go out and tell the gospel that Herod actually hears something of this gospel and he begins to wonder, does this mean that John the Baptist, who I killed, is actually raised from the dead? And it takes us into a digression. The narrative just goes off over here for a while uh, where we were, are told what happened to John the Baptist. And we're given this sordid story of Herod who was married Herodias, who was... Um, Uh, the wife of his brother, and so uh, Herod divorced his first wife, and Herodias divorced Herod's brother, and then Herodias and Herod got married. And Herodias has a daughter from another marriage named Salome from the previous marriage, which makes Salome blood, blood relative of Herod Antipas in this story. And yet we hear this very sordid tale where Herod, on his birthday, is celebrating with all the important people in the culture, and his stepdaughter dances and pleases him. Now, I don't know how much imagination we're supposed to supply to that statement, but I believe it's reasonable to understand it to be quite sordid. Herod is pleased by his daughter, by his daughter in uh, daughter-in-law dancing, and he is quite exuberant. And he says, "I want to give you up to half of my kingdom." Now that doesn't mean literally, but that just means I want to give you a great gift because you did such an awesome job. I am so delighted. And the daughter goes back to the mother and says, "What do you want?" I want Herod, uh, John the Baptist's head on a platter because John the Baptist had become a great nuisance. He had said, you are breaking the law marrying each other. You cannot be married, uh, you cannot marry your sister according to the law. And so Herodias, of course, hated that uh, condemnation very much. And so John, so, so John the Baptist loses his head because Herod has to keep his promise. So that's the story. But it clearly interrupts these two beautiful passages of Jesus sending out his disciples to gather his sheep and then bringing all of these people together to feed his sheep. It's clearly an interruption. It's a digression from the story. Why is it there? Why is this interruption? Well, perhaps you have heard me say this a few times already. What, what do we call a story that seems to come in the middle of two other stories? in the Gospel of Mark, because he's done this a few times. It's a sandwich, a Markan sandwich. What we have here is a Markan sandwich. Mark wants us to see a relationship between this digression and the story of the Good Shepherd on both sides. What is the purpose, then, of this sandwich? I believe there are two purposes that are clear. One is to condemn the anti-shepherds, and the second is to foreshadow Jesus as the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So the first thing I want you to see is the condemnation of the anti-shepherds. Herod fits the description of the shepherds that God condemns in Ezekiel 34. As we look at this passage of Herod, we see four characteristics that make up Herod an anti-shepherd. First, look at verse 17. Verse 17, we, it was Herod who had sent, um, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, because he had married her. Uh, We see that uh, John the Baptist had been condemning him for this marriage, so he arrested um, John the Baptist instead of listening to John the Baptist. We see then, first of all, that Herod represents a carnal and unrepentant life. Herod is a leader that represents a carnal and unrepentant life. Second, we see as he gathers together all of the nobles to have a big party at his house, that he is separated from the sheep. He is not amongst the sheep. The good shepherd is amongst the sheep. He is separated. He is with his people, his nobles, 
the important, the who's who. And what he sees the people for is a source of wealth. So he uses the people for taxation so that he can build his palaces, so that he can throw his parties. We see him separated from the people. Third, we see Herod as an anti-shepherd silencing those who speak truth against him. John the Baptist tells him in verse 16, what does he say in verse 16? When Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. Because, Herod, because John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to be married to your brother's wife, verse 18. So Herod silences those who speak truth against him. He even silences the prophets of God. And finally, as we remember this sordid story of being entertained by his daughter-in-law, we see that he is a man who is self-serving and exceedingly decadent towards himself. What do we read then in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 2 and 3? Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, O shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Here we see Herod representing an anti-shepherd. I guess all I can say is, thank goodness anti-shepherds aren't a, are, are a thing of the past. Um, but marvel at the contrast. Herod sought the kingship to be served, to become wealthy, to become important. Christ came to not to serve himself, but to serve others. Look at the two different meals. One is a meal of debauchery to celebrate sin and depravity. The other meal is to satisfy the deepest needs of the lost sheep of Israel. One is ornate, the other is simple, but which one did you, would you rather be at? Second, we see that it foreshadows that Jesus will be the one who lays down his life for the sheep. John the Baptist is told in this story because he is the forerunner of Jesus. In, in chapter 1, verse 3, we saw that, that, Mark, that, that John the Baptist came to announce Jesus' coming, and now, with his death, he is there to announce the way that Jesus will go, which is that he will suffer and die. Look at verse 29. The disciples came and laid John the Baptist in a tomb. The next time you will read that phrase, it will be about Jesus who was taken off the cross and laid in a tomb. John the Baptist's story is a foreshadowing of what we know is coming. Christ has come not to be a king to rule harshly over his people, but to become a shepherd who lays down his life to save his people. John 10, verse 11, we are told by Jesus himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What what amazing truth. The king, the cosmic king, the creator, the one who stands in the throne room of God comes down to redeem his sheep by laying his life down on the cross. This is extraordinary, unbelievable love that we have in the good shepherd, Jesus, who gives his life for the sheep. He gave his life for yours. I still can't make sense of how grand and shocking that is. But you have been purchased by the precious blood of the Son of God who desires you to rescue you from whatever lostness to bring you into his home to feed you and satisfy you for eternity. What a beautiful shepherd. What does this mean for us as we look at this? It means we, that we are to live our lives for the one who died for us. If the Savior suffered for us, we need to be prepared to suffer for him. And we are going to see that message become more and more clear in the weeks ahead. So let's conclude again by going back to Ezekiel chapter 34. 
and look at verses 22 to 24 where it says of God, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. In this passage, Mark has artfully real, uh, brought to our attention that Jesus is that prophesied shepherd who comes as God and fulfills the, the, the kingship of David. Praise God that in Jesus the good shepherd has come. He has come, he gathers his sheep, he feeds his sheep, and he lays down his life for his sheep. What left do I have to say but to anyone here who has not accepted the gospel, recognize that the preached gospel is the shepherd calling you right now. Have you repented? Have you turned towards his voice and say, I will follow you wherever you lead? He will take you to still waters and green pastures. Have you repented? And so as we reflect on who we have, who our true leader is, that we have the good shepherd that we cannot find in this world in any place else, that we have that in Jesus Christ, I want to conclude reading in unison the 23rd Psalm as we recognize that that is Jesus who has come for us. Do we have it on the screen yet? The 23rd Psalm. Please stand. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.